Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got five members, five questions, and five answers for each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the fervent to the feckless. Let's see who's with us in this episode. Hi, Eric Perry, clinical faculty at Southern New Hampshire University. Hi, Steph Martyr, doctoral candidate at Kent State University, practicing clinical counselor, and hopefully still co-host of Grad School Deconstructed. Love the optimism, Steph. Jen Cook, associate professor, University of Texas at San Antonio. Hey, y'all. Mitch Conrad, graduate student at Cleveland State University. And and Stephanie's back. We finally get to get a Stephanie question in now. She's been under the weather with cold, flu, COVID, whatever the hell it is she's got. Um, so she's uh, bringing her, her game, A game tonight uh, to the podcast. And Eric, you've got the first question. Oh, and I'm going to start with excitement, right? Big one. So what are the best ways you know to teach statistics and psychometrics? This is great to come back to for the very first question especially you are welcome <laughs> yeah um uh, you know i can speak from being a student and as a student um it was great when people are clear and they break down the steps but they make it all go together and make sense as for how the statistics tie into the equations that you're using when to use them, um, and it builds on each other when it goes in some sort of order uh, where you build skill upon skill, getting more in depth as you continue on. Um, you know, where they say, this is the equation. I, I had to take statistics like back where there was no, we you weren't online except for to type in your own uh, programs to use to get your statistical answers. Um, so in the interior of my books, I had written every single equation that we used, like in the little blank covers. But that's because the teacher presented it very clearly and just made it easy to understand when and where I would use those equations. Well, Steph, you put me in the Wayback Machine because I just remembered that I took statistics in college as one of my math classes. And I had a TI-83 which wasn't actually mine. I borrowed it from somebody else um, and basically learned how to program a calculator when I took statistics that time. I couldn't have told you at that point in my life like what you were actually supposed to do with any of those equations except plug them into the TI-83. That was what I learned. But, you know, of course, as a counselor educator, I have taught research methods and you know, I teach assessment as part of other courses. I've never taught the assessment course on its own, but I teach addictions, for example. So I teach about the assessments related to addictions. So my approach in both cases is always to apply it. Um, and I always start with applying it because if students can see what the purpose of it is, 
then I think that they they might get into the, you know, stats a little bit more of like having an interest in being able to run the m- numbers. But frankly, I don't even care if they can run the numbers. I want them to be able to know what it means. So what is an ANOVA? What is a MANOVA? So on and so forth. Because most of the graduates in my program, they are going to go on and be research consumers. And so I do a lot of focus around that. So you know, when I've taught research, for example, I start off by teaching the overview of all methodologies, not just starting quant, then qual, then mixed methods, like a lot of folks do, because I want them to get a sense of which types of research ask which types of questions or answer which types of questions, excuse me. So thinking about kind of conceptually, where does this all fit? Um, and I think it really starts with the kinds of things we want to find out. So that's usually my approach is that I'm thinking about them as consumers first. So being able to look at, to look through an article and to read the methodology section and not skip it, by the way, which many, many people do. Um, and when they see the authors conducted a MANOVA, they know the reason for that related to the research question. Then if they want to learn the math, if they want to learn how to plug crap into Excel, SPSS, are whatever it is, be my guest. But like, I don't even run my own statistics. I have somebody who does that for me because I don't find joy in little numbers and little boxes and sticking in formulas. So uh, I guess since that's my perspective, it gets passed on uh, that, you know, if you don't love plugging in the numbers, you don't have to, but I need you to know what the numbers mean and why they are there and the purpose that they're serving. So um, full disclosure here, Statistics was probably one of my um, like least favorite college classes. But as soon as we got to applied statistics, I had a teacher who really got me into it. And the reason that I got so into statistics, like as soon as we got into like applied material, like SP, like doing SPSS and, and research methods and not just formulas, was that we were given, we were encouraged to make projects that align with our interests and um, like test use like test all the knowledge that we gained in that class um, to like do a basically to make a research project this was like way back in undergrad but as as soon as as soon as I had something that I could do with it that I was passionate about um, that's when I felt like I was so much more motivated um, to learn about statistics Uh, I, I I just can't get there when a professor is just going over like the formulas in class for just like knowing them for sake of knowing them. I, I it was as soon as I got that like emotional attachment to like researching a lot of uh, a lot of things. Like I remember my undergrad, like researching a lot of things surrounding um, gender, uh, and that's when I was like kind of all in on research methods and, and SPSS. Uh, it just took something that I really cared about, I think, um, for me to get interested. I, I sort of fall into the same uh, focuses as Jen does in terms of really making it applied. Those of you talking about technology like calculators, what are calculators? All of my statistics was taught on a chalkboard not a whiteboard, a chalkboard. And we had to take fervent notes and all of our exams were done by doing the whole equations completely out. Now, 
I Mitch is nodding his head. It's probably not the thrilling thing in, in one's life to be able to see that and then have to reproduce it. But it really, uh, I think it gets you down to the ground level of how things are figured out. And if you can figure out the logic, it helps your thinking. But in practicality, if we're teaching master students who are going to go out and be practicing counselors, they really don't need know, to know how to crunch the numbers. They're going to be reading information. It's going to have statistics in it. So to the degree that Jen you know, has said they need to know what the statistical tests are and why they were done that way, I think is, is great. I would like to see them have more applied cases or problem-based learning where they're trying to figure out what would a, a good researcher do to apply the statistics and what models would they use to be able to, to do that. But there's a little book I got. I can't remember when I got it. It might have been in my undergraduate degree. And it's available online for listeners who just want to Google how to lie with statistics. I don't know if anybody in our group has seen this book. It was written in 1954, and at least the edition I pulled down, it was a PDF of it that someone had put up. Many people had put it up, actually, so I think it's beyond the copyright. It's a great little book in getting you thinking about how to evaluate things when people are using statistics, and it gets you into the thinking of, well, wait a minute, they say... 50% are doing this, but what about, how did they derive that? What it, so it really sets the mind up on, on how to question what people are putting out with statistical data. And it's written in a way that it's, it, you can get, it's a small book, you can get through it real quickly, and it's written in an anecdotal way that makes it easy to understand the concepts they're trying to get across. So I would go for a much more practical, much more. We've got to teach our counseling practitioners how to evaluate what they're hearing in terms of data and information out in the world, and basically to get their mind thinking about how people can distort that information with statistics. I don't know if you all ever did this in your classes, but I would have them um, evaluate ads that are on TV and on the radio. And have them flip it to where the data that were are reported could be reported in the inverse way and what the message would be. And that's kind of what you're saying, Marty, but that's always a fun activity because students are like, oh my gosh. So if three out of four dentists recommend Crest, what's the other 25% represent? I mean, they just, they kind of get into it and start thinking about it in a different way. So I do the same thing, but with correlational studies, they're everywhere, right? And how often correlation implies causation in the news and popular media. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's ice cream and murder. Nobody's ever heard the analogy. Um, ice cream rates and use goes up in the summer and so do murder rates. Therefore, ice cream causes murder. Um, and there's tons of examples of this. I kind of feel like it's my birthday, even though it's not my birthday. Um just being able to talk about this. I was a mathlete, if anybody's not aware, right? I didn't play sports. Um, I was I was into mathletics. I competed in high school in math. Um, that was my claim to fame. It was lonely, but it was my claim anyway. 
I enjoy teaching it now. I enjoy talking about it. I think there's a lot of ways to get students excited about it. And I think being critical consumers of research is part of how you can do that. Once they learn, they can start to pick apart how some of these studies are done, some of the results, and that the statistics that they give and and understand can help them do that, can understand, you know, what is going to support me as I work with clients, what is going to support the work that I do or or that I want to go for, they can get excited about it. I think we get too stuck in the math part sometimes and thinking about the calculations themselves and really need to stick to those meanings. And there's so many fun ways to do that. Um, that I think really engage you in the process. So I appreciate the sharing of ideas. And I know it's not the most exciting question in the world, but it's a fun one for me. And now for another fun question. Um, This has been on the, uh, it's been uh, on deck. It's been on deck for a long time now, but finally, since I'm here, um, I can ask, if you could use an emulator to play retro games, what game would you play? Well, I'm going to sound a little long in the tooth as if I'm 110 years old. Um, And I got to go with the very first game that came with my ColecoVision, which was looping. I don't know if anybody ever played looping, which was, you know, this little airplane and the controls were in reverse, you know, like just like an airplane would be. So to go up, you had to pull back and all of that. But closely after that, we also got the game Zaxxon. Uh, which was also in the arcade, which was like one of the most badass games ever, by the way. Just have to put that out there. I have to mention Donkey Kong Jr. because that was, I played that on Atari on my 2600 adapter that plugged into my ColecoVision that one of my friends had. So we played many of the hours of that. But last but not least, I must mention the Smurfs which I'm going to tell you sounds like the stupidest game ever on ColecoVision, but it was legit the best. And when you have to fight Gargamel at the end and you keep having Gargamel kill you over and over and over again, it is reminiscent of like what we all went through playing Zelda once Nintendo came out um, because there were all these tricks you had to figure out and all of this. Like it was, it was early, but you know, I'm back on, I, I had ColecoVision, so of course you're getting a like really super heavy ColecoVision answer and I could obviously not only narrow it down to one. I've been waiting for this question my entire life. I love emulation so much. Um, I think the reason that I love it is because um, like 90% of video games are not commercially available anymore. Um, and so the only opportunity, the only way that you can play them is like, if you like find an arcade somewhere or, uh, like one of the big game makers, like wants to re-release it or something like that. I always find it really great to just hear, you know, Jen, you shared like some of the games that you played. Right. Um, and you know, how much joy that those games can bring to people. Um, and it's, it's sad to me that, that they're not available, um, anymore. Um, I'm someone who does dabble certainly in emulation. I'm very uh, passionate about video game history and and preservation of of media uh, that, you know, the idea that like 90% of movies would just be like gone and and, and not exist tomorrow or 90% of music uh, would just be like unfathomable to me. And so it's sort of the same kind of thing here is that like, we need better ways to preserve games and be able to like share the fun memories that we had with them i know that like i you know i recently got a got a chance to play uh 
Space Invaders with my mom for, you know, the first time. It was one of like her favorite games. And we were able to like share that moment together of I've never played Space Invaders before, but she has and she, you know, remembers it and she's still just as bad as it as she remembers that she was. And I'm not great at it either, but it was like a nice little like family moment that we were able to share. Um, my sister and I still play this game called Wario's Woods, which is is kind of like a, te- a random like Tetris game for Super Nintendo. Um, and, you know, we like are very competitive about it every time that we see each other, you know, uh, like some other arcade games like I'm thinking of Galaga is like one of my favorites, you know, it, just being able to share the those with like uh, like things that we grew up playing, but uh, are no longer commercially available we we can emulate i just think that's like so special uh so really love old games you know jen you brought up the one game that i really got stuck on and it had nothing to do with little animated fantasy characters when those things started happening i was like no no not for me uh but zaxon and you can find Zaxxon emulators now. You can find, you you can go on Amazon and you can buy boxes that will play Zaxxon if you want to do Zaxxon. But for me, I, I've got to go on the way, way back mach- machine. And this might challenge uh, Eric's claim as a mathlete. But the Plato system, P-L-A-T-O, and if you search Plato computers, These were developed at University of Illinois, and I went and did my undergraduate at the University of Illinois and uh, was tied to the Plato system. I would encourage you to look up Plato computers and go to the Wikipedia page, and you can see exactly what I'm talking about. They had these big boxes that literally had lights crossing in a crisscross pattern, and the way you responded to things that were on the screen was you touched and interrupted the light sources in the screen to advance to whatever you were, you were doing. One of my fond memories of Plato was learning German on it. So I would go over to the foreign language building at uh, nine o'clock at night and do my German lessons. And then at 10 o'clock, it opened up the system. If you knew the password and the password was often put on a little index card up by the bulletin board, behind the desk and you could go into all sorts of games and other people from around the United States who were on the Plato system would play those games with you. But the other extremely fond memory I have of it, this I thought was brilliant. Everybody knows name that tune. You know, I can name that tune in three notes. I can name that tune in four notes. And I wish I could find the emulator of this. In organic chemistry, we had sort of a name that tune game on Plato that was, I can create this organic molecule in five steps. Oh, I can create it in four steps. And then it was like, okay, create that molecule. And if you were able to create the molecule with a certain percentage of yield, then you got the point. And so it was just hours of challenging people in creating different kinds of organic molecules and trying to create it in the least amount of steps with the still the highest amount of efficiency. So I think I've successfully challenged the math lead here uh, with this one. But yeah, 
that that organic chemistry game was just ingenious and i wish i could find an emulator of it i don't know i i this is a question i i probably could have a whole show on i think so really early on i lived across from i lived in uh an apartment complex condos and across from us heard like noises at one point in the evening and saw lights flashing and me and a couple of my friends who were outside were kind of like looking over to the windows trying to figure out what's going on and you know we got caught snooping and guy comes out and was one of the original programmers for mortal kombat the first release of mortal kombat and had the full cabinet in his house prior to the release of the game so it wasn't anywhere at the time and he brought us in and let us play and it was fantastic it's one of those things like i'll I'll never forget of course i i have my original loves though and i i was taking some notes while we were talking i had an emulator not too long ago that i played paperboy on every once in a while love paperboy Missile Command, if anybody remembers that one, um, was a lot of fun. Contra, right? And that whole series, these are games that I would play a lot with my dad when I was younger. Wolfenstein, anyone remembers that? I played that one on an IBM computer, the very original uh, Wolfenstein game. You know, I, I, I liked the different stages and phases of game development. So there's times where I want to go back and play those really kind of nostalgic games like like Paperboy. And then there's times I'll pick up stuff that I, I haven't played in a long time um, or go out there and find. And it's it's cool to see that most of that is out there now. You can find an emulator to play most of what's available. Now, I know some of that's not, you know, has to be semi-legally appropriated in order to to play um, and same as Mitch, I worry sometimes about us not having like physical access to some of this stuff that one day we might lose it. I was looking for the original Tecmo Bowl for Thanksgiving to play with my dad. And I was going to try and find a, an emulator for that for him for Christmas, because that's one that holds some some fond memories for me, too. Uh, I just think it's a lot of fun. It's a great way for me to relax. And every now and then I'll I'll just... I'll get the itch, look up something new and travel down memory lane. This is really, really cool because it, it it made me realize how much of that I've already invited in in just different ways, irrespective of the answer that I have for this. So uh, soon after Mike and I were married and um, needed stuff for the house, and went to Bed Bath & Beyond, but they were selling like for $30, $50, I don't know. It wasn't money I needed to spend, but it had all, all of the um, the games like Beastmaster, Contra, um, all of them on there. The problem was I had Castle. Did I have Castlevania? I don't know. The problem was you couldn't save anything, just like you couldn't way back when. But at this time, it, it, it's more irritating now because I got used to saving things. Um, I don't know. So it it was just fun to kind of go back with that. And I thought it was kind of ironic that the system that I will now want to emulate really had some of the most horrific emulations. (laughs) It emulated some popular games really horribly because I'm thinking about my Commodore 64. My parents said, you don't need a Nintendo. You have a Commodore. Okay. 
Um, I mean, I think that they were probably rightly concerned that my brain would just get very attached to a Nintendo. They they saw how happy video games made me. So um, maybe made a right call there. But tell you, playing um, Super Mario Brothers on the Commodore 64, I don't know. It, it was like the wonkiest thing ever. It was like this, you know, it's like you get the generic, more than generic version. And it's just like, I don't know. Ugh. But but I played it because it's what I had. Anyways, the game I would play now, and I've actually found it, which is what made me think about this question, was a game made for the Commodore 64 called Jumpman. And it was a fantastic game. It was amazing. And I still have, it has hidden levels that I never got to because it would randomly load a level. And you were this little man with a pixel for a head and um this i guess i mean you, you would jump and there were ladders and then there were like other little pixels with no body on them they would come and shoot at you at different angles and different speeds and there'd be different numbers of them and it would make this sound like Psh! and you'd have to jump when they're coming at you because you couldn't get knocked off the platforms you were on um and then when you fell and you eventually did fall or get knocked off or jump into the air um, and you couldn't land, it would put the little like birds tweeting over your head and it would which was kind of freaky at the time, but there were robots on certain levels. It was just, it was madness. It was really great with all the different, um, you know, obstacles and puzzles that you had to figure out. Some of them were more speed and agility and some of them you had to actually think and figure out some intricate puzzles. So I would play Jumpman if I could really find it again. I miss you, Jumpman. I'm noticing the more people talk about these games, I'm just thinking about more and more just popping into my head as I'm sitting here. When you said Jumpman, I of course thought about Qbert. I don't know if anybody ever played Qbert. Anyway, and it also dawned on me that we're probably going to need a question on on some episode about the Oregon Trail because most of us in this room were tortured by the Oregon Trail, but we're like always really glad to be playing the Oregon Trail because it meant that you weren't doing work at school. It's also the reason I think we all learned what the word dysentery meant very early on. Yeah, no joke, right? Yeah. So uh, my question: What do you do to avoid jet lag? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if I have a great answer for this. I mean, I think that the one thing that I always forget to do on um, flights, especially is stay hydrated. Um, and like, it, it's even something that I forget to in my daily, like in my daily life, it's like making sure to be drinking enough water. Um, but I also like, I guess I am in a way fortunate in that I don't like, I've never gotten terrible jet lag. Um but, you know, I, I, I do wonder like what I would do differently if I, if I had gotten it, um, gotten it pretty bad. So I wish I had like su suggestions to share, but I, I actually think that I'm, uh, this question may be out of my, <laughs> maybe out of my scope a little bit. Um, I've got a whole series of travel issues. One, I love to travel. So that is not an issue. But I got to be very careful because I'm a big guy and I hate going into plane lavatories. So the idea of hydrating a lot on a plane 
is not good for an old guy with a, you know, very needy bladder. Um, the other thing is I snore terribly without a CPAP machine. And I discovered that on a trip from, uh, France to Turkey, uh, where I went to sleep and cause I was just exhausted. And before I went to sleep, I was surrounded by people. And then when I woke up, there was nobody in the seats around me. And the attendant leaned over me and said, oh, you're awake. And then I realized sort of I'd scared. So I don't sleep on planes. So that adds to the jet lag issue. And what I do and what I've done with trips is whatever time I land, that's my new time. And I do everything in my world to stay up. So if I land in Turkey and it's 10 a.m., I'm going to stay up until 10 p.m. And then crash like crazy at 10 p.m. and try to force myself into that cycle. That usually works. I, I'm usually switch over pretty well. But if I go to Turkey and it's 10 a.m. and they give me a three-hour nap, I will never get over the jet lag. I will never get back on cycle when I'm there. So I always try to make that effort to wherever I go, east or west, stay up to the point that is the normal bedtime hour for folks no matter what it takes, and then crash. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I, I, I've i always found that the trip back is worse. I acclimate pretty quickly, but then coming back home is when I hit that kind of jet lag button. Um, and it can take me days to like readjust to my home time. So and the first switch is okay. Uh, the second one is bad. So I generally try to have at least a day or two to recover when I come home. Um, it's even more important, I think, than when I leave, just to be able to get back on that cycle. Um, you know, like Marty, I, I'm, I can't sleep on a plane. I'm tall. It's uncomfortable. You know, I, I'm not a svelte boy. Um, so it's just, it's not a comfortable experience. And, and getting up and going to the bathroom eight times is just not something I can do. Um, so for me, I, I think the sleep is a big deal. Um, you know, I try and avoid anything that's going to mess with my system, just not overdoing it on the caffeine or underdoing it on the caffeine, um, trying to stick to as normal a routine as I can, um, and adjusting and then coming back and giving myself that extra time feels like it's, it's really helpful. Um, so when I come home, I follow that same kind of regular schedule, um, to get back on those hours, if it means staying up or or even trying to go to bed early, um, earlier than I feel like I would be ready, just to avoid that couple of days it takes to get back in the rhythm. It's been a while since I've traveled anywhere that would give me actual significant jet lag um, as far as overseas. Uh, I think I was like 14 going to France, so I don't remember. I'm sure I was all excited and could do everything at all hours at that age anyway. I don't know. I remember staying up and it was like nothing. Um, recently went to Denver. So I don't know, two hours. It didn't feel like it was going to be much. And I don't really think it was, but I felt awful the whole time that I was there, even though I was getting better bit by bit. And it wasn't until I got home that Mike suggested that it was altitude sickness. And I was like, Oh, yeah. 
that makes more sense because I was baffled why two hours was throwing me off so much. And like, I couldn't compensate in a way that I could function and feel decent. So um, I hope to go to Japan soon. I'm really desperately trying to plan a trip, um, I think, for spring 2025. So I can come back and report then. Eric, I got a comment on the whole like coming back thing because I'm thinking you're you're probably talking about coming back from Europe to U.S. like because I know that's where you just went. I'm going to tell you the problem with that flight is people are idiots and they close all the shades, turn off all the lights. I'm like, look, folks, it's daytime. Open the shades, turn your watches ahead. Guess what? It's morning in U.S. right now. Stay the hell awake. That's why people get screwed up coming back because people are trying to, they're keeping it dark. Like it's nighttime. It's not nighttime, y'all. We got to get back on daytime. I am a big believer in what Marty said about, you know, get on the time of wherever it is you're going. I don't sleep on the plane anymore. I used to. And I discovered that I had worse jet lag when I would sleep for four or five hours on a plane that was real crap sleep than just staying awake. Um, And so now I just... I just stay awake. I might doze off for 20, 30 minutes here and there a couple of times, but I stay awake. I also drink a lot of water because guess what? That helps me to stay awake because I don't mind using the lavatory in the bathroom on the airplane, even though I'm huge too. I I mean, I'm not a small person. I'm six feet. So some of those toilets are a little small, although they seem to be getting bigger. Like I was just on an aircraft coming back from Europe a few several weeks ago now and it was like a walk-in closet i mean the thing was gigantic i could stand all the way up i could turn all the way around so water is a big thing staying awake and yeah i make it till 10 o'clock that's always my goal is 10 o'clock um the hardest for me was is going west uh when we went to hawaii several years back it's been a decade almost now um that was the worst of trying to stay awake for me. Cause I, I just kept saying, stay awake, stay awake. And I was with one of my friends and we just kept like, stay awake. I'm like, we got to walk back from dinner. She's like, no, I got to get in a cab. And I'm like, no, we'll fall asleep if we get in a cab, you know? <laughs> so that's, I always change my watch the minute I get on the plane and know that I'm not going to miss it because I changed my watch. And so I still wear a watch with hands. And so I switch it straight away when I get on the plane and just go in for the kill and stay awake and just keep on staying awake. And you kind of feel a little cold medicine-y kind of buzz uh, when you get to the other side, but eh, it burns off eventually. I think a PhD prepared that for, prepared all of us for that. All right. Uh, My question is what part of the role of the counselor is challenging to prepare students for while they're still in the classroom? Um, this is an interesting question. I'm glad you brought it to us. For me, it's the privacy of the work that you do. I mean, we talk about confidentiality and we talk about ethics and how you can't talk about this and you can't talk about that. But when you're out working with this as a full-time job, everybody talks about their job, but you can't. Um, and getting used to the privacy of you know, spending eight hours in a confessional with people, um, you can't step out and start telling tales. Um, so getting used to the fact that you're in a vocation that is really very private and you have to keep a lot of stuff to yourselves. And then also just the idea that your outcomes with clients are generally uncertain. 
Um, they're not, the, the story doesn't always end like a movie, um, for your clients. Sometimes they disappear and you never hear what the outcome is. So you have to get comfortable with that. So those are my one, I guess, two pieces of advice. It's just the extreme privacy of this job that you, it's not for party conversation. Um, and generally if you tell people what you do half the time, they'll either try to get some free therapy off of you or disappear because they don't want you to psychoanalyze them. Yeah. I, the, the outcomes thing was really hard for me at first, you know, have a couple of sessions, things going really well, things are starting to improve or, or even just, you know, connecting with a client and then they just, they're vapor, they're gone, you know, and, and it's just, uh, well, I hope I did good, you know, and it kind of leaves that open ended thing that just doesn't, it doesn't feel great. Uh, it's not always the experience, but it happens a lot. Um, I think the big part for me that that's hard to get across, even though we do so much with it, is this idea of self-care. Uh, and we talk about it and like I get toward the end of the teaching at the end of the program, you know, right before field work and um, students are like, I do not want to reflect on self-care again. And, you know, it's it's getting across what you need to be present and and in that space eight hours a day um you know back to back and, and how strenuous it really is to be in that space for three or four hours at a time without a break um it, it can be tougher than than you can really convey um and once you're in that situation you start to get it and you start to see it and then the grind moves forward and you have to prepare for what that's like for you to be in that seat and, you know, as much as we talk about it, as much as we walk through it, I think there's this element of you, you can't really understand it and how taxing it can be um, and fulfilling it can be at the same time, right? Which is just these totally conflicting emotions that you have to walk with um, and then learn how to deal with as you go forward. And that has to change because stuff doesn't always work the same. So, you know, something works really great at getting you through for a while. And then stress builds up and you have to adjust and, you know, you have to start doing these things that you start doing with clients to, to be effective in this role. And I, I think sometimes you, it's hard to prepare students for that experiential part that, that doing the job is going to provide for them, you know, and pushing for things like supervision in their own therapeutic work, being vital to that. Um, and I don't think they can always see it because they haven't been presented with that challenge. And I don't think that's something we can present them with um, in, a, in a really genuine way through just educational means. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what always sticks with me. Um, yeah, that kind of has me thinking, like, how to help students really learn the, it, to do the things that they're asking of their clients or they're suggesting to clients, right? Um, I think that's an excellent point and something really pertinent. Um, I was thinking about this and for something that was kind of unique and I guess what came to mind as morbid as it might be is uh, losing a client um, if they complete suicide or if there's some a homicidal situation um by the nature of the situation that's 
kind of good that we can't necessarily adequately prepare students for that. We can give them resources and, you know, go through steps of what to do and then go back to what Eric was suggesting with a lot of that self-care and supervision um, to address that. But I think just because it's an extreme situation and it's very real, but it's also something that people hope, you know, maybe doesn't happen. It gets talked about, but I don't think that that's something you can really prepare anyone for or a student for um, in the classroom. I have so many things running through my mind of like when students write you after they've been graduated or you run into them in the street and they're like, cook, you're not going to believe. Remember when you told me blah, blah, blah. And I didn't believe you. (laughs) We probably all have these stories, you know, Um, but a couple stand out. One is uh, the importance of emotional boundaries, you know, being able to kind of protect your emotions, keep yours to yourself, not be soaking up your clients emotions. Uh, it kind of goes a little bit with what Eric was saying related to self-care of like, you you can't really know what it means until you have to live it. Um, and it's really, it, it becomes active. It has to be an active process, not just simply a teach in the classroom. But the other thing that came, comes to mind really clearly that all the time, anytime I taught skills and I taught skills for nine years, um, I'm not teaching skills now. This is the first time in nine years I'm not teaching skills. Um But the whole idea of being expert on process, not on content, that clients are the experts on the content, we're the experts on the process, but that to be expert doesn't mean that it's the same way every single time with every single client. You know, there's not a rote path that we can designate that this is how it's going to go. Oh, if you, uh, if you do at least four reflections and summaries, then you, of course, it's time for an open question. You know, it's like, it's not that straightforward or easy. And the idea of embracing process over content in terms of expertise means that you're not solving anyone's problems. You're not, you know, just tossing advice constantly. And have you tried this? And have you tried that? You know, which in the beginning, they love to do. They love to problem solve. And even over time, they still can, they still can't stop themselves. I think until they get maybe to internship two, they finally get to the point where they can stop themselves from saying, have you tried, you know, and wait, you know, waiting for the litany to come after that of like, what about this? What about that? And the client, no, no, no. And then you don't see the client again, you know? So I think it's that kind of stuff that you have to experience pulling that behavior and the client rolling their eyes or not coming back to really kind of grasp like, yeah, that doesn't, that's not counseling and that doesn't work. And wow, I guess Cook was right. (laughs) And every other counselor educator has ever said it. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks everybody so much for sharing your answers. I know that, um, you know, as a grad student who's not in, in internship, but has a lot of, uh, you know, friends who are currently in internship, like in my program, like, uh, I'm glad to hear some, some similarities and, and kind of like in what they're experiencing. Um, because I, I think it is hard, uh, to like, get the, get a full picture of like what being a counselor is. I think like someone had a conversation with me. It was like, I think that I've been, they were saying something along the lines of like, I, I think that I've been doing a lot of, of work to like have a good session with a client but i don't think that i was thinking very much about like how to hold a job that's eight hours a day 
you know, seeing clients for eight hours a day. It's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, that kind of makes sense a little bit. Um, you know, so it's just, it's interesting. Like I think about, um, I think about some crisis management stuff as well. I know the stuff you, you touched on this. Like, I, I think that, um, you know, I was in a, I was in a job, uh, where I had to deal with a lot of like pertinent, like crisis management, uh, working with, uh, the police, working with, um, you know, security in places. And there was a lot of times where that was like the rougher part of the job. And, and, um, like it's hard to train people for that, um, as opposed to like getting out there and like experiencing it first. And so I think that's, it's one of the reasons why I'm so like chomping at the bit to like, I just wanted to actually, you know, I feel like I've been in school for about two years now. I'm ready to get to, to internship and, and start actually seeing clients. Um, so exciting, uh, excited about that, but yeah, thanks everybody for your answers. Good stuff to think about. Well, my question tonight kind of, I think, uh, segs off of that. You know, it wasn't planned that way, but it, it is now. Um, how do you manage it mentally when work or life gets too overwhelming? Okay. Um, so I have, I have a couple strategies. Um, some of them good, some of them not great. Um, usually I start with passive aggressive. That's how I tend to interact with the world. Once I'm, I'm overwhelmed, overstimulated. Um, and I start to notice it in my own behavior. It's, it's, a kind of a trigger point for me. I realize I'm, I'm probably overwhelmed. Um, you know, I use humor and that helps, you know, to sit in that kind of place, but it's, it's the laugh or cry option, right. I've kind of hit that turning point. Um, so those kind of tip me off that there's things that need to change. And, and I think there's a, a ton of ways I go about this, depending on what that stressor is or what that, where the tipping point is. Um, there's been a lot of instances where I've had to really sit down and decide what needs to go, right? If I'm overwhelmed, something needs to go. Um, and it's generally because I've gotten myself involved in too much. I have a tendency to do that. I have a tendency to say yes too often, um, and really need to narrow to those things I really enjoy, like to do, or that aren't additive to my stress and, and have benefit. Um, so there's a lot of times where I, I need to start making those decisions. And, and once I hit that decision point, it's, I, I cut stuff, stuff's got to go. Um, I think the other thing is really leveraging the things that I know work when I'm overwhelmed that help. Um, you know, I have, I have peers for that. Um, my spouse is a huge form of support, right? When things get overwhelming, I can mouth vomit just like lose my mind for a few minutes without judgment. Um, and that's a real comfort to be able to have that. And I have friends I have that with too, that I can call and just, just lose it. Right. And then just hang up the phone and it's, it's fine. We can have a normal conversation the next time we talk. Um, I think just really leveraging those resources that work. We talked about games a little bit earlier. Sometimes I need to just unplug. I need to do something that has no actual consequence to anything else other than my own amusement and enjoyment and how less frequent those things uh, are a part of your life. I think when you get older um, can start to impact you because you go from this, you know, this real downswing on doing things that really have no impetus on the future. Um, 
And you need those things, I think, as a part of your ability to cope. So, you know, for me, it's it's grabbing onto those strategies, grabbing onto those resources, and sometimes cutting out those things that just aren't bringing me joy, so to speak. You touched on, excuse me, you touched on several things that have also worked for me when I start to like get irritated that I have to do things that are really, if I took a step back, not necessary in any way, shape or form, but they feel like it's life important. Um, You know, as far as participation, you know, it's the commitment at times or how much, or is it the perfectionism that's driving me crazy and it just doesn't need to be that deep and, you know, trying to figure out where to trim back, whether it's in my intensity or it's in the amount of obligation. Um, you also did do a lot of the other things. I'll just be like, I'm going upstairs now, you know, and I'll be down in two hours and I watch a stupid movie or a good movie, but something, or I roll Katamari, um, or shoot some stuff with Fortnite or in Fortnite. Do I, is this my age? I play the Fortnite. Is that, <laughs> but trying to get lost in something else other than my thoughts for a while. Absolutely. I've noted this is funny when I was thinking about this question, I'm like, you know, I don't think I'm as chronically overwhelmed as I used to be. And I don't know if that's just sort of like over time, like I don't care as much or I don't have as high of perfectionism. I don't think I say yes to as many things that I don't want to do anymore as I used to. And that I think has been a real relief. I mean, I still say yes to things, but I don't overload on the yeses anymore because frankly, I like reading a book in the evening at my, you know, and sitting on my porch and watching my neighbors and their dogs and all that. You know what I'm saying? So like, I want room for that. I want to cook at night, you know, even though all of those things in themselves can be stress relievers and help me not to feel so overwhelmed. I like them to be part of my regular day on a, on the, you know, on a daily basis, you know? Um, but it's funny, like Eric, when you were talking about like humor and sarcasm, and I mean, that's how, that's part of how I know that I'm starting to get a little bit fried, you know, if, you know, we're all working at home still, you know, some degree of the time and I'll have a colleague call me about something and then how are you? And I just start laughing. That's when I know that like, okay, we're starting to get up here and then they start laughing and there's like that kind of mutual respect for like, yeah, we're going to laugh right now because crying is just not an option. Um, But I also, you know, I'll, I think you all know this about me. Like I've always got a song running and, you know, when things start getting up here, all of a sudden I'll hear, you know, y'all gonna make me lose my mind up, you know, like I'll just start singing that over and over again. So like, and it helps to kind of break like ordinary overwhelmed, you know, sometimes I'll have done something really hard and I'm just so sick of it. And I, I have one of these easy buttons from one of those office stores that that was easy. Legitimately. I push this button to kind of like ironicize my way out of things that are hard, you know, like, I don't know. Like, I know this all just sounds really bizarre, but like, I I just have had to find ways to bounce through a crazy reality. And I think most of us live a crazy reality. So it's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, 
I might start singing, you know, some really raunchy hip hop to get me out, or I might need to like go for a walk. Sometimes I just have to physically get the gross out of my body, but, and sometimes I just need to lie down (laughs) and I tend to let myself do that because I'm like, why not? Yeah. Um, you know, I think when I was younger, I would, I definitely relate to like the idea that, you know, I think a few of us have mentioned the idea of like saying yes to too many things. Um, I think that I get so interested in, in different projects that people are doing or, or, uh, different, uh, tasks or ideas that I, I try to latch on and get involved, um, whether it be at work or at school, um, or with friends. Um, and I think that I've, as I've gotten older, I've seen that like, I've generally been spreading myself too thin and being a part of too many things instead of doing like a few things really well. Um, and so like, that's, I think the adjustment that, that I've made, um, probably in the last five years is that I feel like I'm saying, um, no more with the idea that, uh, like I'm trying to take the roles and responsibilities that I have and like put more into the, like the main ones that I have. Um, and I think a lot of times, uh, I do, f- I-, I still like know that I feel bad, like when I do say no to things. Um, so for instance, like I, I know that I can't, I'm not someone who can like hang out with, with people every single weekend. I need my alone time. I need my, you know, time where I'm just like chilling at home and, um, listening to music, uh, watching like, you know, we were all saying like just watching stuff for sole purpose of enjoyment. Um, and I think that's helped me a lot over the past, like five years is to really just like, I I can't go, I'm not someone who can go out every weekend and, and hang out every weekend with people anymore. I love being around people. Um, but the reason that I love being around people is I'm around them the right amount. Um, and when I'm around other people too much, then I think that's when I get overwhelmed. So, um, I, I think it's really for, for me, it's about taking more, uh, really just taking more meaningful time for myself away from, uh, the important things that I've got to, to do in life. Such deep, heady, existential answers. I was just looking for something simple. Um, I liked Eric's comment about uh, passive aggressive. That's sort of my signal to know that too much is getting to me. And sometimes I get hypercritical and Aileen will say, uh, stop misbehaving. Uh, she will point it out to me when I, st- I start complaining about eh, get off my lawn. Um, she'll, she'll say, you know, chill out. Um, but for me, and this is one of the benefits of COVID, I think, uh, having to stay at home and then, then the whole work world changed. So yeah, you can work it. I felt more comfortable to work at home. Uh, so a greater percentage of my time is, is in this room working at home. I go in for all of my classes, go in for all meetings that demand that I'm in present, but when I'm not there, and if I can schedule the rest of the block of the day away, I'm here at home and I'm working, which means I'm also about 20 feet away from a nap. Uh, so anytime it just seems like it's too much, screw it. I'm taking a 30 minute nap and I can snore as loud as I want to. Cause I'm not on an airplane and, uh, come back after that, grab a cup of coffee and I'm, 
back at back at uh, my job here at this desk at home. So uh, I'm I tried to keep it simple. Uh, now I'm surprised none of you brought up the final shot question because that there in itself is another way to uh, deal with life when it gets mentally too overwhelming. And the final shot question is. What do you think is the essential element of a Hallmark Christmas movie? Uh, aside from the mute button, because I'd rather not, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's uh, someone is Santa Claus. Someone is secretly Santa Claus. I thought that it was some sort of title that is a pun combining romance and the holiday terminology of some sort. I think it's the... I'm so lonely of a woman, but I can't say that I'm lonely because I'm a strong working woman. But when I see that hot guy in the Santa Claus suit, I know I'm going to pretend like I don't like him, but I'm going to go for him when he comes for me because, you know, he's going to bring all of my blues away because it's the Christmas season. Uh, I'm going to say that uh, the most essential element of a Hallmark Christmas movie is probably Christmas. That's the best I could. Boy, you folks have issues, 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 issues. Let me tell you the most essential part of a Hallmark Christmas movie, black ice and amnesia. You've got to have an accident because of that black ice. And then you have to have amnesia. And the quintessential one is, I love this title. Remember, Steph, you talked about titles. A Christmas to Remember. That's where Miro Savina... Academy Award winner Miro Savina post uh, her career post Harvey Weinstein, which explains why she's on Hallmark movies, hits some black ice, slides off the road, crawls back up on the road, has amnesia, and it is not an Oscar worthy performance. It's basically her walking around like she's stoned the whole time with her eyes open and glazed. So black ice and amnesia, essential components to a good Hallmark Christmas movie. Uh, you could probably even search that movie and, and watch it. Or uh, Eric, in your case, you can watch it with a mute button on. Uh, it's just as funny. And, and actually, the plot plays through without any any sound. So let's thanks to the uh, let's give thanks to the firing squad, Eric, Jen, Stephanie and Mitch. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the Pod Talk Net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Make sure and check out the Tech Savvy Professor podcast hosted by Eric and myself. Our theme music is from Menage Quad, Real Swing Chef. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim. Aim.